welcome to part seven of 20 Years On, the series where we look back at Hong Kong's highs and lows over the past 20 years. I'm Anna Fenton, and this week we revisit the celebrity events that made the headlines over the last two decades. We learn how the loss of counterpop legends Leslie Cheung and Anita Moy broke the hearts of Hong Kong. The Mail on Sunday's Asia correspondent Simon Parry tells us why Hong Kong stories fail to raise even an eyebrow back in Britain unless they involve murderous expatriates or tales of outrageous spending. Finally, former HK Magazine editor Adam White charts the change from celebrities making the headlines to viral online clips, catapulting nobodies into instant celebrities. Oh, and he recalls what the sadist killer Rorik Jutting did when they were at school together. But first, I asked cultural critic Vivian Chow to recall the main showbiz stories of the last 20 years. The loss of the most important cultural icons um, who were also the greatest celebrities from Hong Kong of all times. I think that was uh, that would be the most important stories uh, from the past 20 years. So who are we talking about? Um, for example, Leslie Jung, Anita Moy, um, Fei-Fei, Lydia Shum, and James Wong, the author and lyricist and Roman Tam um, I think these are very important people um, who were not only the best um, and the most talented um, performers singers and artists but they also represent a generation of Hong Kong people's um, aspiration and the spirit of Hong Kong so when they died in um, in, in the in, in the past um time in, in the past and it, it caused a huge um, um, influence and not just um, not just in terms of making newspaper headlines but also um, it broke people's hearts because their departure their, their departure um, their departure signifies um, the end of an era of Hong Kong okay so tell us who a bit about Leslie Jung for example. So Leslie Joe was um, a pop singer and also a, a very talented actor um, from from the um, from the eighties and also well into the two thousands. And um, so he's we of course uh, he was uh, he was this really um, really handsome and very talented um, um, performer and who also pushed um, who, was, who was also very edgy. And so as Anita Moy, who was uh, the pop queen of Canto Pop uh, ever since she launched her career in the 80s. Um, the two of them died in 2003, which was a very tragic year for Hong Kong because we were hit by SARS. And Leslie Jones died on April the 1st. Which was April the Fool's Day, wasn't it? So there was a huge uh, uh, uproar because nobody knew whether to believe it or not. Yeah, I remember that... Um, it was around like 6 p.m. and uh, so people would start get, getting phone calls from friends and saying, "Oh, Leslie Jun jumped out of the, the Mandarin Oriental," and no one could believe it because it was April Fool's Day. But then it turned out to be true, and uh, everyone was devastated. So not just not just um, hardcore fans, but also people who have been close attachment to Hong Kong, whether whether they live in Hong Kong or not, like basically Chinese-speaking communities from around the world. So everybody was really devastated. And um, Anita Moy um, was a very close friend of 
Leslie Jung. And um, so, of course, the death of Leslie Jung was a, a huge, uh, had a huge impact on Anita, who was, um, who, was uh, who was suffering from cancer at the time. And so, when she died uh, on December 30th, the same year, in the same year, it was like it felt a bit like the end of the world because um, uh, in the same year we lost two of the most beloved um, canto pop icons. So uh, I, that was that was the that was probably the worst um, the worst or the most uh, important things that I can remember. Okay, well, on a lighter note, then we had uh, we well perhaps not lighter, but at least uh, not quite so serious was um, pop star and actor Edison Chan and his antics. Now you were very involved in that because you were covering that story, and it, it wasn't exactly enjoyable, I don't think. Yeah, it was uh, the sex photo scandal that lasted for quite a few months. Uh, it was in the beginning of 2008, which just uh, it, it happened just um, before the Lunar New Year that I can remember, and um, there was this mysterious files of photos that were released uh, every single day, and uh, so they used were sex photos from um, uh, Edison and his lovers who were also really popular and really well-known female celebrities at the time. And uh, at first, at the beginning, we were, everybody was thinking, okay, were, were these real? Because the people who were involved were Cecilia Jung, the actress, um, and also Julian Chong from one of the twins. And there are also many, uh, a few other models who were also pretty well-known at the time. And, um, and they... Uh, and it lasted for a few months and then there were a total of uh, like over 500 photos and yes I was pretty involved because I was uh, I was responsible for that story throughout and I had to look at every single photo every day this was when you were working for SCMP uh, yes it was 2008 so I remember that very clearly and uh, there was a point that I just couldn't stand looking at these photos anymore and I had to go to the bathroom and throw up Oh dear, oh dear. Well, one story I think gave you a few giggles was um, Cecil Chow and his various carryings on. Uh, oh, he's such a fascinating character. And um, I think and his stories actually last for the past. They have a very long lifespan. Now, let's explain who Cecil is. He was from a, a dynasty of, of um, Shanghainese uh, shipping family who came down in 1949. And he is one of the, one of the brothers. And he became uh, in charge of the property part of the family empire. And I'll let you take over from there. <laughs> and um, yeah, so uh, I don't know since when he became this notorious playboy in town. I think because of his wealth, his good looking, and uh, he. He's an architect, isn't he? Yeah, and he was also trained as an architect. So, um, and. Um, so he was seen as, uh, you know, this really flamboyant um, uh, society figure who was also very attractive to a lot of women at the time. And um, so I remember I met him in early 2000s um, for a story, for an interview. Did he try and chat you up? Uh, I'm not sure if that actually happened. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> maybe I was I was too young to realize you know what he was trying to do. But anyway, so I got into I, I asked him uh, how many women he dated, and then he said ten um, thousand. Uh, he's had ten thousand girlfriends, and then um, I was like, uh, that's not impossible. How could you? <laughs> how could you have ten thousand girlfriends? And then he started explaining like why um, it's why it is possible, and uh, why he liked dating women uh, at different times, like all the time with different women at different times. Um, and then he started going on and going on and on about his. Uh, um, the history of his love life, which was really fascinating, and, um, and so he did have some stable partners. So unlike um, unlike how he has been portrayed in the in, in the media, but um, that actually made news headline um, at the time when the story came out. Uh, I think that was, but that was quite a bold statement claiming that you've had ten thousand. Girlfriends. That's quite a score. But the story of Cecil continues, doesn't it? Because his daughter Gigi then, uh, well, he, he got he made the headlines again because of her. Um, oh yes, uh, it's. I mean, uh, you have Cecil Child being a really famous womanizer, and that it turns out that um, the daughter uh, was a uh, is a lesbian, and um, Cecil just couldn't take. Couldn't accept the fact that um, his daughter's lesbian, and then he offered a bounty to um, for, for, for for anyone who can be who can marry um, Gigi as a, 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 a wife. And it then, was a lot of money, wasn't it? Five hundred thousand uh, dollars. Oh yeah, a lot of money was involved, and um, and, and it became not it became headlines not just in Hong Kong but also internationally um, because it was such an um, uh, it was it was such a hilarious story at the time, but then of course we were also uh, uh, I mean people also felt sorry for um, Gigi because she made her own choice. Uh, she's she's very happily married to her girlfriend. Isn't yes, she? exactly. And so if she's uh, living a happy life, then uh, why would the father do something like this to? Actual to, to upset her uh, and and also um, Gigi's partner and um, so it got quite um, hmm. and it, it got it, it it caused quite a storm and I remember there was uh, uh, some Hollywood producer who offered to buy the right to the story and then turn it around into a um, movie. So I don't know what's happening now, or whether that project's still in the in the making. But uh, but it was it was quite a quite a comedy at the time. Vivian Chow. I caught up with Simon Parry, the Asia correspondent for the London Mail on Sunday newspaper, who explained why British readers couldn't care less what happens in their former colony, unless it involves shocking behaviour by rich expats or crazy spending. I've been in Hong Kong for twenty years. For the first five years of that, I was news editor at the South China Morning Post, and subsequently I was writing for overseas newspapers, and it's quite interesting the difference in perspective. What matters in Hong Kong doesn't necessarily uh, matter as much to people overseas. Uh, I think when SARS was taking place, of course the whole world was watching Hong Kong, and uh, we were doing daily reports from Hong Kong on the situation. Um, it was... Uh, a nightmare that everybody was worried about and thought it would spread around the world. But since then, I have to be honest, the number of stories that have 
made big headlines overseas, especially in the middle market papers. You could probably count them on one hand. So they don't care about Occupy Central or Article 23 or all those things that get us excited? Not in the same way that we do. They do get some exposure, but I think most people, even in Britain, which obviously has a historic long relationship with Hong Kong, take the view that Hong Kong is now part of China. And if people throw their arms up and say, we want freedom, they say, well, you're part of China, and that's you know, not going to happen. So, and I think that attitude has become more and more cemented over the years. The stories that they are interested in Hong Kong are the ones that uh, uh, reflect the, uh, the exoticism of Hong Kong, perhaps the wealth of Hong Kong. And I'm thinking in particular of the uh, milkshake murder in 2003. That was the story of uh, Nancy Kissel, the murder of her uh, husband, Robert Kissel, a Merrill Lynch banker. Um, the reason it caught people's imagination was because it was a fascinating insight into the way that expats on very high salaries uh, live, or that people perceived it as an insight into the way that they lived. And, uh, of course, the circumstances themselves were pretty remarkable. Nancy Kissel was uh, having an affair with a, uh, a handyman uh, from back in the US and uh, decided to murder her husband when he came back from work. She gave him a laced strawberry milkshake and uh, then bludgeoned him with a metal statuette uh, rolled him up in a carpet and um, had the carpet removed and put into an understairs cupboard at the uh, very expensive housing development where they lived. That was Parkview wasn't it? I mean what the reason it became so fascinating of course was when it came to court she her defence was basically that he'd been an abusive uh, husband and that he'd been taking cocaine and abusing her over a period of years and uh, the trial was full of these salacious revelations about uh, the way um, uh, extremely highly paid uh, expatriates lived in, in, in Hong Kong and the kind of things they got up to. Um, the other story that also reflected the same kind of uh, uh, interest overseas was the uh, Rurik Jutting case. Rurik Jutting was a Cambridge-educated British banker who, who, who arrived in Hong Kong in 2013 and um, appeared to sink into quite a hedonistic lifestyle, living in a flat very close to the Wan Chai red-light area and taking uh, increasingly large amounts of uh, drugs and uh, partying on a sort of fairly nightly basis, either up in... Um, uh, Lang Kwai Fong, or, or later down in uh, down in Wan Chai. And also, I believe he, he was on weekend trips to the Philippines, to Angeles City, where he was living it up as well. He was. He had a string of girlfriends over in the Philippines, so he'd get a flight from Hong Kong on Friday afternoons and stay in Angeles City, with uh, where he'd take out groups of about twenty girls, um, and uh, stay in the ABC Hotel in uh, in, uh, in, uh, in in Angeles, and uh, then come back to um, Hong Kong. Uh, for the working week. Uh, but interestingly, I, I interviewed quite a few of his girlfriends in the Philippines. He seems to have had quite a, a different lifestyle over there. He would take these large groups of girls out, but he just, you know, treated them quite well, drank with them, and, uh, and, and came back. It was in Hong Kong where he seems to have um, fallen into sort of rather more depraved practices, which... It was an increasing spiral of sadism, according to people who know him and the people who he went out with in, 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 in Hong Kong. 
they used to um, uh, find submissive girls who they could uh, mistreat and, and sort of torture up to a point and it culminated in the murder of um, uh, an Indonesian and a Filipino prostitute uh, some 18 months after he arrived one of them as you will know was found in a suitcase on his balcony and she'd been murdered some days earlier and he stayed in his flat and went out and attempted to murder a second one who fought back uh, and um, that was when he found the police as she lay dying in his, uh, in, in his apartment. So he actually called the police and they came round, I think? That's correct. And caught the, found correct. the murder she, scene there? the second girl lay dying in his flat. He found the, uh, found the police and I think it took some time to persuade them that he was actually telling them the truth. They then came around and um, found the um, Filipino girl uh, <laughs> dead in his uh, bedroom and some hours later uh, found the uh, second girl dead and stuffed inside a suitcase on his uh, on his balcony. Yes, you'd think somebody would have noticed by then, wouldn't you? Yes, uh, there were some questions to be raised about the way that the search took place, but um, of course that was a huge story for the uh, UK newspapers in particular. So how did they report that? Did they report that as a British boy gone mad and bad in, in, in the Far East, or how was it reported? That's very much how it was reported, of course. Uh, and I think it's probably the last time when you've seen a press pack descend upon Hong Kong, which is a very rare thing these days, uh, because the level of interest in what happens out here is not so great. Um, you didn't get a pack of reporters coming out for the July the 1st demonstrations, for instance, and you didn't get a... Uh, you did get... The, the broadsheets covered Occupy well, but not the, um, but not the mass market papers. But when Rurik Jutting was arrested and that story started to unfold, there was a tremendous interest and all of the mass market papers sent out reporters and were here for some time, both here and in uh, Angela's, uh, finding out everything they could about um, the Rurik Jutting. And of course it was fascinating. I mean, here was a guy who appeared to have every privilege. He was Cambridge educated and... Uh, uh, and Winchester quiet. before that. That's right, yeah. And uh, had... And was also very highly regarded uh, within his uh, within his bank. He was being tipped for promotion. He was seen as, um, you know, a risk-taker, a go-getter. Uh, what they didn't realise was the risks he was taking in his personal life and the kind of path that he appeared to be uh, going down. Mm. Um, and the fascinating thing about Rurik Jutting, from my point of view, as a reporter who was covering it from Hong Kong and had been in Hong Kong for quite a long time, was the, the way that the police reacted to it in some respects. Um, here we had very well documented and worrying accounts of bankers uh, getting huge amounts of drugs on street corners in um, some of the more you know, salubrious parts of, uh, of Hong Kong. And yet, in the weeks that followed, you could still go up to these clubs that he frequented and, and be offered cocaine on street corners. Nothing was done to, uh, in, in the immediate aftermath to act against uh, that kind of scene. And yet what, they, what the police did do was round up the undocumented uh, Indonesian women working in the uh, clubs in uh, Wan Chai. There was a huge roundup to the extent that these places were almost deserted for, for, for months afterwards. So it appeared that the 
the action was taken against the, the, the you know the people who were the victims in all of this the, the, the kind of women like the one who was uh, who was murdered they were rounded up and deported or sent to immigration centers while the um, uh, well-paid expats were allowed to carry on partying uh, and carrying on buying drugs on street corners so using and abusing rather I, I think in in reality I imagine that it was a matter of very little consequence for um, uh, the Hong Kong police or the Hong Kong authorities I think they probably saw it as just a a bit of a bit of nonsense involving expats and affecting nobody uh, nobody else for the overseas papers though it was a fantastically salacious and fascinating story and again something that showed you the uh, kind of untrammeled lifestyles that some of these uh, expats seem to seem to lead which of course is a constant source of fascination for people back home Simon Parry talking of Rurik Jutting led me neatly to former HK magazine editor Adam White who had the dubious honour of attending the same school, Winchester College in England, as the notorious murderer. He recalls the young Rorick as a rather singular chap, even back then. He went on to explain how the internet has proved a game-changer for local Hong Kong news coverage. Well, I don't remember very much, really. He was about five years older than me, so he was always one of those people who was off in the... In, in the distance as a rather sort of elegant, tall and, and skinny guy at the time um, and everyone was rather impressed with him um, my main memory is that he was sort of going out with the brother of a friend of mine and at the same time decided to steal the brother's girlfriend hang on a minute, going out with the brother and then stole the brother's girlfriend yes, that's, that, that's about right so who's a bit ambisextrous Yes, I think it's fair to say that. Um, is that an early indication of sociopathy, or was he just a teenager who was had too much experimenting? Indeed. Okay, but did he have any sort of early forebodings or signs of um, deviancy? Certainly none that I was aware of. Um, it doesn't mean that they weren't there, but it means that I never saw them. Sadly. Yeah. yeah. And how do you think the school um, thinks of him now? I mean, Winchester is the sort of school that uh, has had a fairly colourful reputation, hasn't it? Is he just another one of the rather more extraordinary students? I think he might have been sort of gently brushed under the carpet, but there's a, there's a certain notoriety that goes with that that I'm sure that some of us don't look down upon necessarily. <laughs> OK. <laughs> well, in your time as editor of HK magazine... You've seen the news stories that get people in Hong Kong going, and, and particularly on a local level. So over the last 20 years, how do you think the stories have changed? I think one thing that's changed is just how much the internet is involved in the way that stories have become popular and disseminated. I'm, I'm thinking in particular, not, not in terms of the big stories that made headlines around the world, but of the stories that sort of went viral and, and really spoke to the way that Hong, Kong, Hong Kongers saw themselves. Um, I'll give you an example. In 2006, Bus Uncle, if you recall him, Bus Uncle was a man called Roger Chan who was um, sitting on the top deck of a, of a double-decker bus in Kowloon one day and he was talking very loudly on his phone. He was asked to be quiet by the, sort of the young guy behind him who was trying to, trying to nap on his way home. And... Roger Chan starts standing up and berating this man on the bus with choicest of insults and, and several, several references to the man's mother that were not taken very kindly. And the only reason, really, that this became a thing was that some guy was in the back videotaping the whole thing. 
and he didn't only videotape it, but he immediately uploaded it to YouTube. It was a fairly early example of this kind of thing. And it got really popular. It went viral. And it wasn't the incident so much as the way that Roger Chan exploded. The bus uncle, he was yelling, I've got pressure, you've got pressure, we've all got pressure. And and suddenly this sort of very routine, uh, I suppose routine explosion becomes this this look into into just quite how stressed of a society we are mm, mm. how how we're all primed to go off seemingly. how we're all absolutely primed to go off um, they all became sort of mini celebrities after this point for a little while and the media jumped on it as, as the media is wont to do and and Roger Chan ended up doing this succession of rather odd things he uh, he he became the PR director for the steak expert chain of restaurants, which lasted for about a month before <laughs> the tabloids ran, ran stories of his exploits in Shenzhen karaoke bars. And so that had to end. And then I believe he went to Taiwan to support the election of Chen Shui-bian. Um, Chen Shui-bian was not elected. And then he came back to Hong Kong and talked about trying to run for chief executive. Oh dear, but his, his halo was a bit tarnished by this. Yeah, he's, um, you know, he had his five minutes and he extended them to 15. But I think it really did speak to just this sense of stress that Hong Kong has, has, has always got going on. Do you think that that has increased in recent years? I think it has. I think it has. Here's another example that, that does quite a good job of explaining this is in 2013, 14 Slap Kong Girl. Do you remember her? No. She was, uh, it was, again, a viral video. It was three people on a Kowloon City street, um, two women standing over a man who was kneeling on the ground, um, in, in crying, in, in, in sort of abject apology as one of the two women slapped him in the face repeatedly, yelling at him because he'd apparently brought a woman home to their apartment, um, and slapped him 14 times in between in between verbal admonishments as well 14 times 14 14 one was that four. significant the 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 number wasn't but the it was the it was the attitude of the woman and the attitude of the man that was seen as 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 examples of the, the sort of the con girl and the con guy the the sort of uh, overbearing entitled stereotype of the hong kong woman and the entirely passive uh, helpless stereotype of the Hong Kong man. Oh dear, oh dear. So you think that this sort of thing charts social changes as well as people's interests over the years? I think what people are interested in charts how how people see the society they live in, certainly. Yeah. Mm, mm. So if you had to make an overall comment about the last 20 years, do you think people have got uh, more prurient and more interested in, in what their neighbours are up to or... Um... Ah, I just think it's easier to find out, isn't it? Adam White. I'm Anna Fenton. Join me again next week when we look back at the biggest crimes of the last two decades and how the nature of crime itself has changed. <laughs> <laughs>